This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today's guest says people with disabilities affecting speech, language, and voice are more likely to experience avoidable healthcare errors and negative healthcare outcomes. Here at SLP, Megan Morris share what role CSD professionals can play in reducing the barriers that lead to healthcare disparities for people with disabilities, particularly when those disabilities affect communication. Plus, throughout the episode, we'll hear from an ADA coordinator and a personal story from someone who has hearing loss. She faced challenges while acting as a care partner for her brother. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Parent involvement is key to successful early intervention. But how do SLPs engage parents effectively? Stop by the Hannon Center's booth at the ASHA Convention to find out how you can become a better parent coach. Joining me now is Megan Morris. Megan is an SLP and a faculty member at the University of Colorado, where she works to address healthcare disparities. Her work takes special interest in disparities experienced by people with disabilities and disabilities related to communication. And as a part of her work, Megan is the founder and director of the Disability Equity Collaborative community, where Megan and collaborators focus on addressing disparities through practice and policy. Megan, welcome to ASHA Voices. Thanks for having me. So let's just start kind of with the broad question. What challenges do people with disabilities face when seeking health care? Unfortunately, there's actually a wide range of challenges they, they experience. A growing body of evidence of, of research really demonstrates that individuals with all types of disabilities, including communication disabilities, experience disparities in the receipt of equitable health care. And this can be Anything from, for example, women with mobility disabilities who use wheelchairs, they have much lower rates of preventative cancer screenings, such as mammograms or pap smears, simply due to the lack of accessible equipment for them. For people with communication disabilities, we see the major barrier is the lack of effective communication. So for individuals with speech and language or voice disabilities, this could be a lack of awareness of the staff on how to effectively communicate with these individuals. For those with hearing loss, it also can be a range of different barriers such as challenges with telehealth and trying to have an appointment over the phone and difficulty understanding their their provider and difficulty understanding the conversation in it, which affects their ability to participate in their healthcare. And when we talk about disparities, we're talking about something bigger than just one individual, right? So I was wondering if maybe you could give a picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about larger healthcare disparities. Yes. When I talk about healthcare disparities, I often refer to the Institute of Medicine, which is now the National Academy of Medicine has a report called Unequal Treatment. And in this report, they have this great figure, and this figure is a bar graph. So imagine an x-axis and a y-axis. And on the the x-axis, we'll have two bars. We'll have one is our minority population and one is our majority population. And y can be any type of health or healthcare outcome. And the difference between, again, the, the minority 
population and the majority population, that equals a difference. So that is a difference in, again, whatever that health or healthcare outcome might be. What this report, though, says is that that difference can be related to three different factors. So first, it can just be differences in patient preferences or needs. And historically, for people with disabilities, including communication disabilities, any difference between the quality of care between someone with a disability and without a disability has been attributed to this piece, saying, oh, we had to treat this patient differently because of their disability. And so that results in a difference in outcomes. But the other two factors that contribute to this difference in care, which these are the two factors that actually make up a disparity, are challenges and barriers in our legal system and our policies and how the health system is structured and set up. The second area is biases, stereotypes in discrimination, which similar to any type of, again, marginalized population. Historically, we've talked about individuals from racial and ethnic minority communities, those who belong to the LGBTQ plus community. Oftentimes, we also talk about gender disparities, but for disabilities, that has been less discussed previously. And so it is Really important, though, because people with disabilities make up 25% of the U.S. adult population, and some people have described it as our largest minority population in the United States, and yet we have paid very little attention thus far to the quality of health and healthcare outcomes and identifying these disparities. You wrote an article in the ASHA Leader about these disparities. It's an article titled Adults with Communication Disabilities Face Healthcare Obstacles. It was published in 2019, co-authored with Michelle Stransky, a senior research scientist at Boston Medical Center. In that article, you list outcomes related to healthcare disparities. And I'm just going to read from the article, the part of the list. You write that they can have more chronic conditions, often struggle to find healthcare providers, seldom receive quality emergency or routine care, often delay or forego care due to cost and availability, experience more medical errors, and are unlikely to have providers use visual support. It's quite the list. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, it is. And, and those are just the list of things we've studied. I'm sure there is actually a host of other conditions and factors that we haven't studied yet. Why would it be that that people with disabilities, communication-based disabilities too, why, why are they more likely to experience more medical errors? So, and I'll point out that these errors are oftentimes avoidable errors. They are seen in healthcare as errors that can be prevented. A classic example that is discussed is that, let's say someone is in the hospital um, and their healthcare team is communicating with them, asking them their medical history. And if the patient is having difficulty expressing themselves, sharing their medical history, or the healthcare team is having difficulty understanding what the patient is saying, they might miss a key part of that medical history, which will affect how they provide treatment. So for example, they might miss what medications or all of the medications that that patient is taking and might end up prescribing 
an additional medication or perhaps even that same medication over and giving a patient too much of a medication or prescribing a medication that interacts with an existing medication. Hearing Megan describe the risks associated with not being able to hear or otherwise communicate with a healthcare provider reminded me of a conversation I'd had earlier in the week. In preparation for this conversation, I interviewed a couple of people Megan recommended I speak with. One person was Tony Occolucci. Tony advocates on behalf of people who have hearing loss as a part of the Hearing Loss Association of America. She told me a story at the root of her advocacy. At the time this story takes place, Tony was assisting her brother who had cancer. Since I had the most flexible schedule, I was his designated point person to go with him for all of his procedures and surgeries and appointments with doctors. The snag was that I am profoundly deaf. Today, Tony has a cochlear implant, but she says at the time she couldn't hear the doctors. She asked for accommodations. Specifically, she wanted CART, computer access real-time translation, but those requests weren't met. At the time, because Tony was taking care of her brother, she would have been entitled to those accommodations, but she wasn't aware of that. I did not know that. If I did, I would have been much more assertive in asking for what I needed to communicate, but I merely thought I was asking for a favor, and I did not want to alienate doctors by taking up extra time. Tony says this experience was stressful and hard on her and her brother. Her brother was often having to repeat difficult information and bad news that he was receiving from doctors. There are 60 million people in the United States who have significant difficulty hearing, so it's happening all the time in hospitals. Unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma attached to hearing loss. People don't like to admit that they can't hear. They feel embarrassed. They feel lesser than, and especially when you're in a difficult situation where you're not feeling well or a loved one isn't feeling well, you just want to try and move on with the conversation. It's not a time to try to teach a hospital what you need. It needs to be preemptive, even though the ADA says it's up to the patient to self-disclose. It needs to be provided because it's in everybody's best interest to be able to communicate all around. I told Megan I was hoping she could speak to this story. In this case, there's a family member who's experiencing something from the third column of the bar graph Megan mentioned earlier, stigma. Yes, this is unfortunately something that we hear over and over is the stigma, both from patients saying, I feel bad that I have a disability. I don't want to burden my healthcare team with this. But then on the other side, we see a stigma of the healthcare team not knowing exactly how to talk about or approach the topic of a communication disability. As an example, we just recently concluded a study in which we recruited medical students and had them participate in clinical scenarios with individuals with aphasia and stuttering. And we we ran almost 100 of these encounters And across all of these encounters, only a few of the students brought up the fact that the patient had difficulty communicating in this mock clinical scenario. And when we talked with the students afterwards and we asked, did you notice that they had difficulty communicating? The students all said, oh yes, yes, I noticed. And we said, well, can you tell me why, why did you not bring it up? And they 
would respond, well, I just assumed that the patient felt so bad that they had a communication disability that I did not want them to feel even worse about me pointing it out. And so this really demonstrates, again, a stigma in understanding how to even broach the topic and discuss a disability. And I will add a little side story related to this and why this is so important is member of this research team, she is a cardiologist, not someone who is that familiar with communication disabilities. And she was a part of the study, had seen our results, and she had an instance where she had a patient, a returning patient, come in for their cardiology appointment. And she was noticing he was having difficulty communicating with her, um, specifically speaking. And she was trying to quickly look through her notes, trying to remember, is this a pre-existing speech or language disability, or, or is this something new? And her first instinct was just to keep going with the appointment and not talk about it. But because of this study, she decided to pause and ask the patient, hey, I noticed you're having difficulty speaking. Is this new? Can you tell me about this? Well, the patient was actually having a stroke right then and there. So they realized that and she was able to send him down immediately to the emergency room and get treated for his stroke. She said, had it not been for an awareness of needing to talk about a communication disability, she would have not brought it up and sent this patient home for the day. Wow. Let's take a focus on the clinician's role on the on audiologists and SLPs. So this is another quote from that 2019 article where I read, got the list. It says, quote, with support from administrators and other providers, audiologists and SLPs are well poised to help improve healthcare access, quality, and outcomes for patients living with all types of speech language voice disabilities. End quote. What are a couple simple ways audiologists and SLPs might be able to help address and reduce healthcare disparities related to communication and disability? So there are actually a few different things that SLPs and audiologists can do. One, I'll take a slight step back and say we've been talking about the stigma and the needs to talk about communication disabilities and the the potential negative outcomes experienced by individuals with communication disabilities in the healthcare setting. But there's another piece of this, and that the Americans with Disabilities Act requires that healthcare professionals and healthcare clinics and organizations provide patients with disabilities effective communication. Because of this, many healthcare organizations either need to or have existing effective communication policies. They outline how the healthcare teams, again, across the organization, whether it is someone who is a front desk staff person from the physician to the medical assistant to the phlebotomist, how should all of these members of the healthcare team interact and communicate with the patient? So they need to first ask the patient, how can I best communicate with you? And then provide any needed accommodations. So for example, if someone had a hearing loss and did not have their hearing aids with them, perhaps they need a personal amplification device and the healthcare team should be providing this accommodation. 
One piece that, again, audiologists and SLPs can do in their organization is look up, does my organization have an effective communication policy? If not, can I help create this policy and give input on what should be included in this policy? This would be a part of the second bar in the bar graph, right? Where you're talking about legal opportunities to help reduce disparities. Absolutely. Legal and what are the the policies and the systems in place within a healthcare organization, clinic, hospital, etc. that, again, can either impede communication or also facilitate improved communication and interaction and participation in, in the patient's care. So that's one piece. Another is just talking with colleagues, getting out of your rehab departments, getting out of your perhaps ENT departments and going to gastroenterology, going to cardiology, going to primary care and saying, hey, would you be interested in me giving a a lunchtime talk about how to effectively communicate with individuals with communication disabilities? And we've developed, for example, short trainings as short as 30 minutes about what are the, the strategies that healthcare teams can use? Anything from speaking in shorter phrases and sentences, looking at the patient while communicating, strategies that we were all taught during our graduate education programs and that we use on a daily basis that have become perhaps second nature to us. But again, these healthcare teams do not get this training and so might not be aware of what are some simple strategies they can use with patients to facilitate communication. That's interesting. So you're saying that perhaps doctors or other medical professionals with other disciplines, they may not have the same training on effective communication, even though they may be face-to-face with those receiving care every day. Absolutely. Unfortunately, in our medical education system, training on disability in general is not a requirement of medical schools. And so medical schools are pretty inconsistent whether or not they include any type of education to their students on how to provide care and effective communication to patients with disabilities. And even if they do provide some type of education, oftentimes it's a one to two hour lecture or a half day in the whole four years of medical school. And this very short training may or may not include information on how to effectively communicate with patients with communication disabilities. How can audiologists and SLPs provide that education to the other members of the healthcare teams that they're on or to their colleagues in the building? What approach can they take both on an individual level and a systemic level What are the opportunities? As I mentioned previously, if there's opportunities to give lunch and learns, new time talks, I would say another simple way to communicate with the the needs of our patients to the healthcare team is to, in our notes, in the clinical notes that we write, perhaps consider at the top of the note, maybe writing some simple bulleted strategies of how best to communicate with that patient. 
So if another provider opened that medical note, they would see very quickly, oh, hey, it looks like I do need to, again, look at this patient while I'm talking. That will facilitate communication. Another piece around medical notes and medical charts is that actually over the summer, there was some new standards released by the federal government around standards for for electronic health records and specifically including disability status is a required data element moving forward. So what this means is many healthcare organizations are starting to look at and incorporate collecting disability status from all of their patients in a standardized way. Now, unfortunately, many of the lists of questions that people use and this results from some guidance provided by the federal government, do not include questions about speech, language, and voice disabilities. And so that is another area that um, particular SLPs can advocate for is if their organization is working on initiatives of systematically collecting disability status from their patients, making sure there is a communication-related question in those standardized questions. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Megan discusses the effects of COVID-19 on people with disabilities, and we talk about the risks facing people at the intersection of inequitable health care associated with disability and race or socioeconomic status. We'll be right back. Support for Asher Voices comes from the Hannon Center. If you work with young children and their families, don't miss the Hannon Center's booth at this year's ASHA convention. They specialize in helping SLPs effectively involve parents in the intervention process using practical materials and evidence-based programs. Stop by the booth to browse their parent-friendly resources and get conference-exclusive discounts and giveaways. Be on the lookout for a presentation on families' experiences attending Hannon's More Than Words program. We'll hear more from SLP Megan Morris in just a moment. First, I want to introduce you to Holly Darnell. Holly is an ADA coordinator for the UC Health Medical Group in Colorado. Holly has a personal connection to her work. She began working as an ADA coordinator in 2019, but during the pandemic, Holly discovered she has hearing loss in both ears. As an ADA coordinator, my primary focus is on accessibility and equitable care for patients with disabilities that visit our outpatient clinics. So that could include the physical accessibility of our spaces, modifications to policies, practices, and procedures, and helping our staff understand the needs of patients with disabilities to make sure that those needs are met. I asked Holly if she coordinates with the audiologists and speech-language pathologists or other healthcare providers, and if there was a teamwork element to meeting the needs of those seeking care. Absolutely, and I think there has to be a teamwork element for these things to really be successful and have the impact that we would like. I am one person with very limited power and decision-making authority in my organization, so I can make recommendations. But anytime I can have those actual experts in the field of things that I'm discussing or folks who might have the patient stories to share, that really can create some power and some impact in things versus me just coming and saying, here's the things to pay attention to when we can back that up with that increased expertise by audiologists and speech language pathologists, and they can assist in getting that information out there, that can certainly be vital to success of some of these initiatives. 
In her conversation, Holly encouraged audiologists and SLPs to contact ADA coordinators in the workplace if they have one. And if they see opportunities for improvement and they can share opportunities for improvement or growth, she says those contacts are beneficial to her and other ADA coordinators. I shared Holly's words with Megan, and I asked her to elaborate on the interprofessional part of this conversation. What other ways can they collaborate with their coworkers? Yes, Holly is a ADA coordinator. These individuals have very different titles, but healthcare organizations and clinics with 15 or more employees are actually required to have one of these individuals. So whether or not it's part of someone's job or a person is hired into this role, again, every clinic or healthcare organization, hospital, et cetera, should have one of these individuals. So as Holly said, absolutely, I encourage audiologists and SLPs to reach out to their local ADA coordinator and work with them, see how can we collaborate. For example, I've heard of organizations collaborating with the ADA coordinators and the SLPs coordinating to create sensory and communication toolkits for individuals with autism, particularly in pediatric settings. And so For example, it could be a toolkit with some toys or other types of items and materials that can be given to a patient in a waiting room. And maybe that child with autism is very anxious about being in a waiting room. There's lots of noise and sounds and lights. And that might be, again, very overstimulating and and challenging. And so one of the items in the toolbox, this sensory communication toolbox could be a pair of noise canceling headphones that the child then puts on that helps decrease their anxiety. So that's, again, an example of audiologists and SLPs working with and collaborating with their local ADA coordinators. You mentioned earlier sound amplification devices. Would an audiologist or an SLP perhaps go to their ADA coordinator and say, hey, you know, I've noticed some communication with people with hearing loss, and I think that a sound amplifier might be helpful. Is there any way we could get those in this building? Would that be the type of conversation to have? Absolutely, absolutely. There's a study that was published last year that as a part of the study, what they did was they provided patients with hearing loss amplification devices when they were in the emergency room. And they actually found that Patients and the emergency room teams expressed that there was better communication, and they actually saw improved outcomes. So patients were coming back to the emergency room less when they had a amplification device with them during their ED visit. ADA coordinators might not know which is the best amplifier, and so teaming with their audiology department to identify what could be the best device for them to purchase. How can they make them available at patients' appointments? How do you train the healthcare teams on how to use these? I mean, they're very simple to use, but a a short primer is always welcome. Last year, we published an episode of the podcast called Confronting Healthcare Disparities, and that conversation focused a little bit more on racial and socioeconomic disparities that were highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm wondering if the pandemic had a similar effect on disparities for people with disabilities. Yes, unfortunately it did. One of the statistics that we have is that individuals with intellectual 
and developmental disabilities when they contracted COVID-19, they were six times more likely to die from COVID-19 as compared to someone without a disability who contracted COVID-19. Looking at all of the different risk factors that the, except for age, having an intellectual or developmental disability was the second largest predictor in poor outcomes or mortality in this case. The COVID-19 pandemic just devastated the disability community. In the healthcare setting, though, I want to draw attention to there were additional barriers that people are probably well aware of. For example, wearing masks in healthcare settings, which we're still doing today, really impedes communication. And this has become very problematic for many people with communication disabilities. So at the start of the pandemic, there were some very innovative people who developed clear masks or masks with clear windows in them. And, you know, at the beginning, unfortunately, they were there were few available. And so now that we're further out from that, it seems as though healthcare settings, they're able to purchase these, these clear masks. But in my experience, I'm still seeing that healthcare teams are not using these clear masks. And I think that part of it is a lack of awareness that they exist, or if if they do exist in an organization, someone needs to communicate, hey, this is a patient that has difficulty communicating. Let's make sure we all wear clear masks when they come in for their appointment today. We also saw challenges with, with restricted visitor policies at the beginning of the pandemic. So we know individuals with communication disabilities many times have care partners who are a critical part of their healthcare team. And these care partners weren't able to visit them to appointments where if someone was hospitalized, they were not able to to be in the hospital helping facilitate communication. And we saw, again, the effects of this. And unfortunately, there were instances where a care partner wasn't able to be there and there were negative outcomes in that the patient wasn't able to get the treatment they needed or decisions about that patient's medical care were made by the team without engaging the patient or the care partner that were not in the in what the the patient wanted so not aligned with their wishes and their goals of care i want to go one more time to the article that I mentioned earlier from 2019. There's a line that jumped off the page to me. You wrote, quote, historically disparities work has focused on race and ethnicity, while disability was assessed as an outcome to be avoided, end quote. Uh, I thought that was such an interesting way to frame it, that disability, instead of being something that was associated with identity, was associated with an outcome that would be avoided. And is that changing? I do think it is changing, but very slowly. There is a movement in the disability community, the identity first movement, that I think it captures this of really saying that disability is part of who I am. It's part of my identity and I belong to this community and I take pride in having a disability. And I think it's really these self-advocates that are really driving this this force and we're seeing it again slowly uh, get incorporated into diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. 
I think in healthcare, it is a little bit slower for adoption because it's so ingrained in our healthcare system of our Western healthcare system has been set up to, we need to eliminate and mitigate the effects of illness and disease. And if you aren't able to to eliminate a disease or illness, you might end up with a disability. And so disability is seen as a direct outcome of, again, having an illness or disease. And that it's, sometimes I describe it as, it's a failure of the medical system. It's, oh, we weren't able to cure this person's multiple sclerosis. And so now they they do have uh, difficulty with mobility and communication. And so, so I think the healthcare system then sees it, oh, this is our failure. And instead of, okay, how do we embrace this, this individual and meet them where they are? It's, well, we're going to, you know, hang our heads in shame and, and, and see what we can do to, again, do our best to try to, again, eliminate this, this disability. That focus on this medical model does not allow us to, again, look at these individuals as a population that does experience stigma, discrimination in the healthcare setting, in, in society in general. And until you're able to recognize that this is a population that is marginalized, you cannot move forward in providing them equitable health care and meeting that person where they are and providing them good care. Because we're talking a little bit about identity, you mentioned DEI issues, race and ethnicity have been in this conversation. I feel like we should probably also mention that there may be different needs among populations that have intersectional identity as well, right? So whether that's a disability and a race that is uh, not receiving equitable care as well. Absolutely. We we do see higher rates of disabilities in racial and ethnic minority communities. Those individuals who are living at that intersection of race and ethnicity and and disability are absolutely at risk for for amplified marginalization. And so we do need to include disability in our DEI efforts because unless we do, we're not actually addressing all of that that whole person, all of their needs. And we have been advocating that you know diversity, equity, inclusion, and add an A at the end for accessibility. And if you rearrange those letters, it spells out the word idea. So we say including accessibility in your DEI efforts is a great idea. In conclusion, I just wanted to ask if, if, you, if there's anything else that you wanted audiologists and SLPs to know about the role they can play in removing barriers to access to care, either on an individual level or on a systemic level. I'd like to reiterate that oftentimes we're in a position that, that we can advocate for these individuals, whether it's in our organizations, but also locally and nationally. And individuals with communication disabilities are, again, historically been marginalized in our society, in our communities. And oftentimes I will say that even in discussions about disability, that those with communication disabilities have not always been a part of those conversations. And we have the opportunity to, again, provide our 
clients tools and strategies to facilitate their participation in advocacy efforts, but then we can also come along beside them and be advocates as well. Megan Morris, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Find past episodes about healthcare disparities and the intersection of hearing loss and public health in the podcast archive. Also, on the blog post for this episode, you'll find links to articles from Megan Morris from the Asher Leader magazine, like the one I mentioned in our conversation. Megan coordinated the research symposium on health and healthcare equity in communication disorders at the 2021 Asher Convention, a symposium partly funded by the National Institute on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders. Find articles, presentations, and a panel discussion from the symposium in ASHA's Journal of Speech, Language, and Hearing Research. Look for those links at on.asha.org slash podcast. A special thank you to Tony and Holly for sharing their stories and to Michelle Stransky, who co-wrote the 2019 ASHA Leader article I mentioned in this episode. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Learn how to meet the challenge of supporting, engaging, and coaching parents of young children with language delays and disorders. Visit the Hannon Center's booth at the ASHA convention, booth number 1935, on November 16th through the 18th. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.